The Story of Spring-Heeled Jack In Victorian times, Barnes Common, an isolated tract of land on the southern bank of the Thames, was a place to avoid. Travelers foolhardy enough to cross the common during twilight hours were often attacked and robbed. One evening in 1837, a businessman who had been working overtime at his office decided to risk a shortcut across the common on his way home. A figure suddenly vaulted high over the railings of the cemetery, as if propelled from a springboard, and he landed with a thud in front of him. The businessman turned and fled when he saw that the mysterious leaper had pointed ears, glowing eyes, and a prominent pointed nose. Three girls encountered the same sinister figure the following night. Again, he made his appearance by bounding over the railings of the cemetery, but on this occasion, he displayed a violent streak. One of the girls had her coat ripped by him, but managed to flee, closely followed by one of her screaming companions. The third girl tried to scream as the unearthly-looking stranger grabbed at her breasts and began tearing off her clothes before leaving her unconscious. During the following month, the leaping terror struck again. This time the venue was Cutthroat Lane, Clappen Common. After visiting her parents in Battersea, Mary Stevens, a servant, headed back to her employer's household on Lavender Hill. As she strolled through the entrance of Cutthroat Lane, a tall figure dressed in black jumped out of the darkness and threw his arms around her, holding her in a vice-like embrace. Before she had a chance to scream, the stranger kissed her face and then dipped his hand into her cleavage before laughing hysterically. The girl screamed and the stranger released her and ran off into the darkness. A number of men hurried to the distressed girl and, after calming her down, they listened to her account of the attack. The men immediately searched the neighborhood for the mysterious assailant, but without success. The following night, the attacker appeared again, not a stone's throw from the house where the servant girl worked. That night, the demonic figure bounded out of the shadows into the path of an approaching carriage. The horses pulling the carriage bolted in fright, and a terrible crash ensued, injuring the coachman. The mayhem maker then seemed to defy the laws of gravity as he jumped effortlessly over a nine-foot-high wall. Not long after that superhuman feat, a mysterious high-jumping man with a cape attacked a woman near Clappen Churchyard. Gradually, the news of the satanic Superman spread and the public gave him a name, Springhield Jack. In February 1838, 18-year-old Lucy Scales and her sister Margaret were on their way home in the evening after visiting their brother's house in Limehouse area. Suddenly, the terrifying cloaked silhouette of Spring-Heeled Jack leapt out of the darkness and exhaled a jet of blue flames from his mouth right into Lucy's face. The teenager screamed, her legs collapsed under her, and she fell to the ground, blinded. Jack jumped high over his victim and her sister, landed on the roof of the house, and bounded off into the night. A pattern was emerging. Jack seemed to like molesting and terrifying young females. His next attack, which took place two days later, was also an 18-year-old girl, Jane Alsop. Jane's house was in Bearhind Lane, a quiet back street in the district of Bow, where she lived with her father and two sisters. She was spending the evening reading when, just before 9 o'clock, there was a knock on the front door. Jane answered, and outside in the shadows stood a caped man. He said to Jane, I'm a policeman. Bring a light. We've caught spring-heeled Jack in the lane. Jane ran excitedly back into the house and returned with a candle. Offering the candle to the caller, she beheld a nightmarish sight. The flickering light illuminated the face of the man purporting to be an officer of the law. It was Jack, and he grinned as he studied the girl's shocked expression. Before she could move, he spurted out a phosphorescent gas, which partially blinded Jane and then he started tearing at her clothes. She punched his big nose and managed to give him the slip, but the enraged Jack bolted after her and stopped her from re-entering the house by clutching at her hair. 
And that's all you get to hear, hear from that, dear readers. <laughs> Why? Because I am reading from Haunted Liverpool by Tom Sleman. Or Sleeman, I don't know precisely how to pronounce his name. And that is his story, the entry of uh, Spring-Heeled Jack. So I, you can find this on Amazon, S-L-E-M-E-N, Haunted Liverpool, first volume. And I would like to thank Amber Patrice Lang for giving me the heads up on that information. She's a, a fan of his, I guess. You guys, if you're a British out there and listening to this, I, does he have a show? I believe she said that she'd listened to him or read a lot of his stuff, so that's pretty cool. So, welcome to Pinkie Pod, Papow. And yes, as you may have guessed, this story is totally about Bigfoot. No, <laughs> Spring Hill Jack, of course it is. Of course it is. I, by the way, as far as I know, there should be no copyright issue with me reading that. It is in the look inside section. You know, when you go to Amazon, you can click and you can read excerpts. I didn't even read all of it. I stopped. I stopped. But thank you, Tom Sleeman. The Tales of Spring-Heeled Jack were first greeted as nonsense, just hysteria. And by January 1838 is when he got his official name and recognition, just as I, that was in that excerpt. Some more uh, eyewitness accounts, apparently. There was a Polly Adams, a barmaid, and she was attacked when walking along Blackheath in South London. There was the servant girl, Mary Stevens, who saw something on Barnes Common. And then the Clapham Churchyard was the scene of an assault. All of these things he covered in that excerpt. There was Lucy Scales, the daughter of a butcher, and she was attacked in Limehouse. Jane Alsop, which he mentioned in that excerpt. I read some other things that say she was strangled by someone or something in her own home. So, you, legends, you know, it's hard to all say right up front, you know, this is obviously a, a legend, right? And you know how those go. You get different tellings, different, um, different details added all the time. So, you know, the author, Tom, probably has, it sounds like, has done a lot of research on it, and he is British, so I think that would be a good thing to read. I think I might get the book, and there's going to be lots of different versions, you know, and it's up to you to decide which one has the most, most truth in it. <laughs> now, Jane Alsop was the one who, uh, she, she lived through this attack, right? And she was probably the first one to describe her assailant to someone, at least uh, to the London magistrates. Quote, he was wearing a kind of helmet and a tight-fitting white costume like an oilskin, and he vomited blue-white flames. So, <laughs> I'm not going to have whatever he was having for dinner. I don't know about you. I mean, that's, that's way beyond indigestion. <laughs> Sir John Cowan, who was Lord Mayor of London at the time, and who received several messages about some demonic creature with eyes like balls of fire and icy claw-like hands and the ability to leap rooftop from rooftop. He didn't know what to do about it, but the police did apparently take this seriously. So as I believe I already quoted, the first official sighting was 1837. Uh, it was mostly suburban London, the Midlands, which in times past would correspond with an area that used to be Mercia, if you're into older history, like in the early Middle Ages. It was also seen in Scotland a bit, tall, thin, devil-like. There were the two people that said he actually spoke some English, and they could actually understand him, which, again, is verified by that excerpt. To get a better grasp of the mood of early 19th century, especially England, London, it might be uh, helpful for you to know that around this time there were many reports of ghosts that were supposedly wandering the London streets, and of course they were pale, and they liked to stalk lone pedestrians. 
You may even recall the Hammersmith ghost, which I actually have I've talked about in other episodes. Some people feel that these ghosts served really as a precursor to Spring-Heeled Jack. Let's go back to Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Callan, and what he said in a public session held in the Mansion House uh, regarding an anonymous complaint that he had received several days earlier, which he had held back in the hope of getting more information before he told anybody about it, right? The letter was signed a resident of Peckham, and this was uh, January 9th, 1838. Quote, It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil. And moreover, that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. At one house, the man rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse-than-brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a specter clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned and has never from that moment been in her senses. The affair has now been going on for some time, and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their finger ends, but, though interested motives, are induced to remain silent. So what I'm getting from that is that basically he's accusing someone of putting this on, somebody higher up, to what purpose I don't know, and that they're keeping it secret, like it's a conspiracy. He's a, he's a conspiracy theorist. There we go. And the mayor seemed pretty skeptical, but there was a member in this audience, you know, when he brought this to light, actually confirmed that there were servant girls about Kensington Hammersmith, haha, Hammersmith, and Ealing, who also told stories of this ghost or devil. It was then reported in the Times on 9th January and other national papers on 10th January. And then on the day after that, so I guess the 11th, the mayor showed a crowded gathering, a pile of letters from various places in and around London that were complaining about, quote, wicked pranks. And the amount of letters that then poured into the mansion house suggests that it was very widespread in suburban London. One writer even said that several young women in Hammersmith were frightened when they say dangerous fits, you know, like that letter writer had uh, alluded to, like just hysterics. And others were severely wounded by claws that maybe this person wore on their hands. Someone from Stockwell, Brixton, Camberwell, and Vauxhall said that several people had died of fright and that others had these fits. Another person reported that the trickster had been seen in Lewisham and Blackheath. And I'm reading now to you just from Wikipedia because sometimes to try to write all of this out myself, it's like, oh, what they've got is good. Let's just run with it. But I thought this was a really interesting story, so I wanted to share it with you. So carrying on here, the mayor, you know, he, he was kind of looking at both sides of this, you know. He thought that some really big exaggerations had been made and that it was impossible that this, quote, ghost performs the feats of a devil upon earth. But then on the other hand, there was someone he really trusted who told him about a servant girl at Forest Hill who had been scared into fits by someone in a bearskin. And he was confident that the person or persons involved in what he called a pantomime display would be caught and punished by gosh. So police were instructed to search for the individual and rewards were even often uh, offered. Bleh. I can still always, you know, get my own alien tongue going there, can't I? There was a report from the Brighton Gazette 
which appeared in the April 14, 1838 edition of the Times, that related a tale of a gardener in Rose Hill, Sussex, and how he'd been terrified by some creature of an unknown nature. The Times wrote that, quote, Spring-heeled Jack has, it seems, found his way to the Sussex coast. And even though this report actually seemed to have little in common with Jack, that's what they said. So the incident supposedly happened on 13 April, when whatever it was appeared to this gardener in the shape of a bear or some other four-footed animal. It attracted the gardener's attention with a growl. It then climbed the garden wall, ran along it on all fours before it jumped down and chased the gardener for quite a while. And completely terrified, you know, after doing that, the apparition scaled the wall and made an exit. But the best known are those that were mentioned in the author's excerpt that I read you. Alsop, and that was 19 February, 1838. Uh, Wikipedia here too also uh, verifies that someone knocked on her, her uh, the door of her home, claimed to be police officer. She brings the light said that they caught Spring-Heeled Jack, but the person who knocked on the door wasn't a policeman and vomited that blue and white flame. But uh, extra detail here is that his eyes resembled red balls of fire. And I believe I already told you that she said he wore a large helmet. His clothing was very tight fitting like white oilskin. He didn't speak to her after that and just starting attacking her. She screamed for help, got away, ran towards the house. He caught her on the steps and tore at her neck and arms with his claws, and she was rescued by one of her sisters, and then spring Jack ran away. He fled. The Scales case, 28 February 1838, which is nine days after what happened to Jane Alsop, it's Lucy Scales. And to get a bit more detail on that from the excerpt, she and her sister were coming home after visiting their brother, who was a butcher. I think somewhere else I'd read it was her father. This says it was her brother. And he lived in a respectable part of Limehouse. Miss Scales stated to, in her deposition to the police, that they were passing Green Dragon Alley. They observed a person standing in an angle of the passage. She was in front of her sister and at the time, and just when they came up to the person who was wearing a cloak, he, you know, vomited out this blue flame in her face, which blinded her, and she was so frightened that she instantly fell to the ground and was seized with violent fits, which continued for several hours. Her brother apparently added that on this night, he had heard the screams of one of his sisters moments after they left the house, and he ran up Green Dragon Alley and found his sister, Lucy, on the ground, having a fit with her other sister attempting to hold and support her. So she was taken home and then he learned from the one sister what had happened. So that's how he knew the, t the story. Now that sister described Lucy's assailant as being tall, thin, gentlemanly looking, you know, with the large cloak. And in this description was carrying a small lamp or bullseye lantern similar to ones used by the police. So now we have a, another kind of police connection there, at least dressing like one, perhaps. The, the dude, the individual, the Spring-Heeled Jack, the whatever he was, didn't actually try to speak, and he didn't lay hands on them, but walked quickly away. And every effort was apparently made by the police to, to discover who was doing that. And they did question a lot of people, but all of those people were set free. So it, it did not come up with anything. It did not yield any results or any suspects. So this is quite interesting. Now the Times, when they reported the alleged attack on Jane Alsop on uh, March 2nd, 1838, under the heading, The Late Outrage at Old Fort. So that's when they, they finally wrote about it. It was followed up with an account of the trial of Thomas Milbank, who was someone who immediately after this reported attack on Jane 
had actually boasted in a tavern called the Morgan's Arms, I believe, that he was Spring Hill Jack. So he was arrested and his trial was at Lambeth Street Court. The one who arrested him was Officer James Lee, who had apparently early, earlier arrested someone named William Quarter, who was the Red Barn murderer. And it's very tempting right now to go look that up, but maybe that should just be another episode because apparently this is another famous thing. So Milbank, the one who said he was, you know, spring Jack, was wearing white overalls and a great coat. And he dropped those outside the house. And a candle that he dropped was also found. So, so he's wearing white. I don't know that they're, I don't know if their overalls would have been tight at the time, but he was in white, so okay. The only reason he escaped being convicted, though, was because Jane, ins- Jane insisted that her attacker had breathed fire. And Milbank, Thomas Milbank, said, yeah, yeah, dang, I can't do that. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so he didn't, so he wasn't convicted. Yeah, sorry, bro, I can't breathe fire. I'm not a dragon. Dracarys. So, <laughs> since a lot of other accounts were written after the fact, a lot of contemporary newspapers did not mention him. So, after those incidents, Springheeled Jack became the most popular, probably most famous character of the period. And his alleged exploits were reported all over different newspapers and they were the subject of several penny dreadfuls which I have mentioned to you before maybe when I talk about uh, Varney the Vampire and things like that. Usually weekly releases of things that just go on and on like serials. So he's in all of those and they even plays that were performed at you know really inexpensive theaters the devil was even renamed spring Jack in some Punch and Judy shows. And as recounted by Henry Mayhew and his London labor and the London poor, quote, this here is Satan. We might say the devil, but that ain't right. And gentle folks don't like such words. He is now commonly called spring Jack or the Rosian bear. That's since the war. End quote. So even... As he's getting real famous here, right? He's going viral. Reports of Spring Hill Jack's appearances actually started to taper off, even though they were widespread, like, you know, the territory, I guess, but they were less frequent. 1843, there was another wave of sightings again, though. There was a report from Northamptonshire, which described him as the very image of the devil himself with horns and eyes of flame. And in East Anglia, there were reports of attacks on drivers of mail coaches, and this became pretty common. July 1847, a spring-heeled Jack investigation in Tynemouth, Devon, led to Captain Finch being convicted of two charges of assault against women, during which he is said to have been disguised in a skin coat, which had the appearance of bullock's hide. For Americans, that's like a bull. Skullcap, horns, and mask. So the legend was linked with a phenomenon known as the Devil's Footprints, which appeared in Devon in February 1855. Dang! There's another one maybe I need to do an episode on, huh? So we got this red barn murderer, we got Devil's Footprints, and we got, you know, it's starting to sound like me, like London was having its own satanic panic. What you think? I think they were having a satanic panic. I final reports seem to be around maybe the beginning of the 1870s you know it he was reported again and again but they were getting farther you know farther apart from each other the sightings in, in november 1872 news of the world reported that peckham was quote in a state of commotion owing to what is known as the peckham ghost which god that sounds really familiar too i've done enough enough uh, supernatural type episodes i've probably mentioned a lot of these so this was a mysterious figure that was quite alarming in, in appearance. The editorial pointed out that it was none other than spring Jack who terrified a past generation. So it sounds like he was um, revived. Similar stories were published in the Illustrated Police News. In April and May 1873, it reported there were numerous sightings in Sheffield of the 
Park Ghost, which locals then also came to identify as spring Jack. So again, now it just sounds like a lot of things are being called spring Jack. And I'm, I'm guessing that if I start to dig into these separate ghosts, maybe they don't really have that much in common. Who knows? More sightings followed until in August 1877, a most notable report about spring Jack came from a group of soldiers in Aldershot Garrison. And it goes like this. A sentry on duty at the North Camp peered into the darkness and his attention attracted by a peculiar figure advancing towards him. The soldier, soldier, there's a word I can't say these two in a row. The soldier issued a challenge, there we go, which went unheeded. You know, it was like, stop, I'm sure it was like, stop, you know, and thing kept coming, kept coming up towards him, ends up beside him and slapped the soldier several times in the face. So the guard shot at him and it didn't seem to have any effect. And some sources claim that the soldier may have fired blanks and others think that he just missed or was firing warning shots. So this strange figure then disappeared into the surrounding darkness. And here it comes, here it comes with astonishing bounds. So he leapt, was leaping away. Lord Ernest Hamilton's 1922 memoir, 40 Years On, actually mentions this Aldershot appearance of Spring-Heeled Jack. However, he apparently, erroneously, says that they occurred in the winter of 1879 after his regiment, the 60th Rifles, had moved to Aldershot, and that similar appearances had occurred when the regiment was barracked at Colchester in the winter of 1878. He adds that the panic was so great at Aldershot that sentries were issued ammunition and ordered to shoot the night terror on site and following which appearances stopped, which is interesting. They're given orders to shoot on site and now you don't see it anymore, which Hamilton then thinks that the appearances were pranks probably carried out by fellow officers and he even names one Lieutenant Affrey but there's no record of Afri ever being court-martialed or anything happening to him, so we don't really know. But it is, it is interesting that as soon as it's like, well, we're gonna shoot it on site, and all of a sudden it stops. Now we go to Liverpool. By the end of the 19th century, the reported sightings of spring Jack were moving towards the northwest of England. It's around 1888 in Everton, North Liverpool allegedly appeared on the rooftop of St. Francis, Francis Xavier's Church in Salisbury Street. 1904, there were reports in nearby William Henry Street. So this is, as I said, of a big, you know, urban legend, probably a, a lot of different things got added to it that might have nothing to do with the originals. And it influenced a lot of aspects of Victorian life and contemporary popular culture. For decades, the name was equated with the boogeyman and it was a way to scare children into behaving. <laughs> it's like, if you're not good, spring Jack is gonna leap up and peer through the windows at you and freak your shit out. It was a fictional entertainment where the legend of spring Jack really had the most influence and really gives us this extraordinary nature or his extraordinary nature. There were three pamphlets, pamphlets, uh, public, you know, publications based supposedly on real events that appeared immediately after these sightings, the original ones in January and February, 1838. They were not advertised as fiction, though they probably were at the time. And the only known copies of these were reported to have, uh, just perished, shall we say, when the British Library was hit during the Blitz, which is a shame. So lost, lost any sort of documentation. But the catalog of the library still lists the first pamphlet. And as I mentioned earlier, this character was written into many penny dreadful stories, especially in the, in the latter part of the 19th century, usually a villain. But interestingly enough, he, he started to become 
heroic in the stories. And by the early 1900s, he was actually represented as a costumed, altruistic adventure of wrongs and protector of the innocent, which basically becomes a precursor to pulp fiction and then comic book superheroes. So do we have any theories? Well, no one was ever really caught and identified as Spring-Heeled Jack. And with the, with the superhuman sort of abilities that were assigned to him and the long period that he was supposedly doing these things, you know, it doesn't seem like it could be a human, right? It's, it's almost like um, Jack the Ripper. And if I'm not mistaken, I will double check the legend of Spring-Heeled Jack and Jack the Ripper, I think, started to get a little, started started to sort of merge and overlap each other in some place, places. We'll get back to that. There are the skeptical positions of people who have, you know, they dismiss it as just mass hysteria, which, you know, can can occur around stories of the boogeyman or the devil. And I told you that originally, you know, there was a whole lot of stuff going around at the time about ghosts, you know, all over the place. There were exaggerated urban myths about a man who who crawled over rooftops and claimed that the devil was chasing him. Other people believe that maybe there were more than one person behind the origins and then that there were imitations, you know, people people copying this later on. Because Springheel Jack was not considered a supernatural creature. But actually just just people, one or more persons, with a very dark sense of humor. This actually matches the contents of the letter to the Lord Mayor, which I read to you uh, a few moments ago, which was accusing some young uh, aristocrats, right? After uh, which, like, they'd made a bet with each other. They made a bet with each other that they could, somebody made a bet in this, you know, rich little group of people who were probably bored and I bet you could do this. And that was a very popular theory with a few people. And then there's a rumor circulating as early as 1840 that pointed to an Irish nobleman, the Marquis of Waterford, as the main suspect. Uh, they suggest this may be due to him having previously bad experiences with women and police officers. Mm-hmm. So the Mar- Marquess, maybe it's Marquess, Marquess actually, uh, was frequently in the news in the late 1830s for, oh, let's see, drunken public brawling, brutal jokes, and vandalism. And people said he would do anything for a bet. This behavior and his contempt for women earned him the title the Mad Marquis. Now that one is spelled Marquis. It's also known that he was in the London area around the time these first sightings of Spring-Heeled Jack took place. In 1880, he was actually named as the person behind it by someone uh, called E. Cobbin Brewer who said that the Marquess used to amuse himself by springing on travelers unawares to frighten them, and from time to time, others had followed his silly example. 1842, the Marquess married and settled in Craigmore House, County Waterford, and then he reportedly led an exemplary life until he died in a riding accident in 1859. Citation needed. <laughs> so, as I already said, uh, you know, so, some of the skeptics definitely assert that these stories were exaggerated and altered through mass hysteria. Many sociological issues may have contributed, you know, rumors, superstition, oral tradition, because, you know, if it's not written down, it's, it's bound to change. Yeah, you, can, you can change written things too, but then you would have a record of it, eh? There's even rich folklore of fairies, strange roguish creatures, you know, leaping and fire spitting powers is just kind of you know it's a little crazy right but do you want to hear some paranormal conjecture well some people think that it was an extraterrestrial entity because of course with a non-human appearance and features like retro reflective red eyes or phosphorus breath 
superhuman superhuman agility because they uh, maybe had a life on a high gravity world so coming here to our gravity would be would be different they would be able to jump and then some people just think he was actually a demon who was accidentally or purposefully summoned into the world by practice practitioners of the occult or maybe he just manifested himself to create turmoil I kind of like that theory. I mean, if you're going to go with it, just run with it. I, I put a vote towards demon, and I, I prefer the idea that he just showed up and was like, yeah, I'm going to fuck around and find out. <laughs> it, let me know which theory you like. There are some authors, uh, Lauren Coleman, Jerome Clark, who list Springheel Jack in a category of phantom attackers with another well-known example. Oh God, here comes another podcast episode maybe. Maybe I should just do a whole thing on everything that's listed in my sources. Mad Gasser of Matun. Did this person run around and say, I fought in your general direction? <laughs> I had to. Well, I didn't have to, but I did. All right, these typically phantom attackers appear human. They, they may be criminals and they might have extraordinary abilities you know like the jumping of spring-heeled jack etc and they cannot be caught by authorities hence phantom i suppose one of the reasons for phantoms victims commonly experience the quote attack in their bedrooms homes or secure enclosures so that makes it extra scary right they might report being pinned or paralyzed which kind of sounds like sleep paralysis if you just put it that way and on the other, or on the other hand, maybe they have a siege in which they fight off persistent intruder or intruders. Uh, some of this can be explained as psychologically, you know, psychological things occurring, like old hag phenomenon, which I, I can tell you what that is. That is like sleep paralysis and this idea that you're waking up with something, you feel like someone is sitting on your chest or something. And really that's just, you know, that feeling in sleep paralysis that you can't breathe. You know what I'm talking about. I've talked about that in the past. And then some people just think it's hallucination. In the uh, worst cases or most problematic cases, the attack is witnessed by several people and there might be some physical evidence, but they can never verify this attacker existed. An interesting uh, a footnote is in Prague, there's a sim similar figure known as Parak the spring man of Prague. And he was reported uh, in Czechoslovakia around 1939 to 1945. Maybe Spring Hill Jack decided to emigrate because he was well out of London by that time. <laughs> There's a writer named Mike Dash who has written about it this, I guess, that the elusiveness and supernatural leaping abilities attributed to Parak bear a close resemblance to Spring-Heeled Jack, and there are parallels that you can draw between the two of them. Stories of Parak provide useful examples of how the traits of Spring-Heeled Jack have a broad cultural resonance in urban folklore. And Parak went on to actually then become a folklore hero, and he's even starred in several animated superhero cartoons fighting the SS. The earliest one, I, I know I won't pronounce this right, Jerry Trinka's 1946 film Parak, and it's P-E-R-A-K, by the way, with accents over the E and the A. A-S-S, or Springman and the S-S. I'm here to tell you that that is not the end of Spring-Heeled Jack, though, when it comes to pop culture, and some of you listening know this. Spring-Heeled Jack 1989 is a combination of prose and graphic novel by Philip Pullman, and Spring-Heeled Jack saves a group of plucky orphans from a malevolent Mac the Knife. There is then The Strange Affair of Spring-Heeled Jack, an alternate history novel by author Mark Hodder, which shows Spring-Heeled Jack as a time traveler. And I was so happy to, uh, to see that mentioned because I remembered, um, I remember that book because Mark was originally published with the publisher I had, Snowbooks. I had read that first one, and then it turns out there are six 
in that series because it was the first of a series, uh, The Strange Affair of Spring-Heeled Jack, a Burton and Swinburne adventure. And I know at least a couple of people on my friends list on Facebook have read this. And I don't know if you guys know that it's an entire series. I mean, if you liked it, I presume you do know, but there are six of them. You can also find that on Amazon, Mark Hodder, H-O-D-D-E-R, and he has several books. He's written several books since that. And I, like I said, I'm not with that publisher anymore and I lost track, but good for you, Mark, way to go. From little indie publisher to a ton of books. Another detail about the Marquis that I spoke of, and I guess it was, this is Henry the Marquis of Waterford. Was that the same one? I've confused myself. Wore a W around his neck, which is supposedly identical to a W that was found dropped on the floor near a victim of Spring-Heeled Jack. People thought it stood for Waterford. I don't know the veracity of this. I have uh, gone to just something that I thought was interesting. But the theory was proven wrong because these things kept happening after the death of Waterford. So as far as me mentioning that, uh, was there any connection between Spring-Heeled Jack and Jack the Ripper? Well, Spring-Heeled Jack is a long time before Jack the Ripper, so I don't think so. And Jack the Ripper didn't take his name from Spring-Heeled Jack because as far as I know, it's widely accepted that Jack the Ripper was coined by a journalist who actually was posing as the killer and it wasn't the actual killer. Remember, there was an infamous letter written to to the uh, press. or the, No, the police officers at the time, right? With Jack the Ripper, that's a whole other deep, deep thing, whole other ball of wax. But, and it's a common sort of thing. Jack of all trades, Jack the Ripper, Spring-Heeled Jack, Jack Tales, Jack the Giant Killer, Jack and the Beanstalk, Black Jack. For some reason, it's just a really common thing. Um, Jack is just a common nickname. What if? We follow, just to wrap up here, because this wasn't a really super deep dive. Sorry about that. Let's, let's follow one of those extra little stories, maybe, yeah? One of those extra stories that I said could be its own podcast. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, also known as the Anesthetic Prowler, the Phantom Anesthetist, or simply the Mad Gasser, was a name given to uh, the person or people who were held responsible for a series of apparent gas attacks that happened in Mattoon, Illinois. So not even in London or England or anywhere around there. And this is during the mid-1940s. There were two dozen separate cases of gassings reported to the police over a span of two weeks and many more reported sightings of a suspected assailant. The supposed victims reported smelling strange odors in their homes, which were soon followed by symptoms such as paralysis of the legs, coughing, nausea, and vomiting. No one died, thankfully, and apparently did not have any serious medical lasting consequences. Police very much remained skeptical throughout the entire thing, out of all the, all the accounts. There was no physical evidence ever found. Many of the gassings had simple explanations like spilled nail polish, odors emanating from animals or local factories. Boy, he had a real gassy dog there maybe, yeah? Victims made very quick recoveries, no long-term effects, but people can't resist a good story and the local newspapers ran alarmist articles about the attacks and treated it as fact. So just so you know, media has a long and glorious tradition of making clickbait, as we call it now. This is another thing that is considered maybe to be a, a case of mass hysteria. Still, you have people that maintain to this day that the Mad Gasser actually existed and that there might, but then there's others that think it was just industrial pollution. The appearance of this mad gasser, I just want to giggle every time, are based on testimony of Mr. and Mrs. Bert Kearney of 1408 Marshall Avenue, the victims of the first Mattoon case to be reported in the media. The gasser was described as tall, 
thin, dressed in dark clothing, and wearing a tight-fitting cap. Another report, many weeks later, described the gasser as a female dressed as a man. Got to be equal opportunity here. And the gasser has also been described as carrying a flit gun, which is an agricultural tool for spraying pesticide, and that is what was used to expel the gas. Now, this first attack was August 31st, 1944. Urban Rafe, and it's a different person because the other one is the first uh, in the newspaper, I believe. Urban Rafe woke up in the early hours of the morning due to a strange odor. He was nauseated, felt weak, and had a fit of vomiting. He thought he was uh, suffering from domestic gas poisoning and Rafe's wife tried to check the kitchen stove to see if there was a problem with the pilot light, but then she found she was partially paralyzed and couldn't leave bed. Later that night, although some accounts say that it was more like early morning of the following day, there was a similar incident reported by a young mother who lived close by. She woke to the sound of her daughter coughing, but was unable to leave her bed. Then September 1st, there was a third incident. Mrs. Kearney, and now we get to them, the one that was reported. Marshall Avenue Mattoon reported smelling strong, sweet odor around 11 p.m. At first, she didn't think anything of it. She thought it might be some flowers outside of the window, but it became stronger and stronger, and she began to lose feeling in her legs. She panicked. Her calls attracted her sister, Mrs. Reddy, who was in the house at the time. Mrs. Reddy also noticed the odor and determined that it was coming from the bedroom window, which was open. Police were contacted, but there was no evidence of a prowler. At around 12.30 a.m., Bert, Mrs. Kearney's husband, who was a local taxi driver, and he wasn't there during the, you know, the original attack, uh, came home and found an unidentified man hiding close to one of the house's windows. The man ran away. Kearney was unable to catch him, and his description was the tall men dressed, uh, dressed in dark clothing wearing the tight-fitting cap. Already said that. Description was then reported to the media, and that's when it took off, right? After the attack, it's said that Mrs. Kearney reported having a burning sensation on her lips and throat, which were again attributed to the effects of whatever the gas was that they thought it was. Initially, they thought maybe it was a robbery was the primary motive, because at the time of these incidents, the Kearneys had a, a lot of money in the house, and they thought that the prowler might have seen Mrs. Kearney and her sister counting it earlier in the evening. The days following that, there were a half dozen similar attacks. None of the victims were able to provide a clear description. No clues were found. The first actual sort of physical evidence was found on the night of September 5th when Carl and Beulah Cords of North 21st Street came home around 10 p.m. After being in the house for a few minutes, they noticed a, uh, a piece of white cloth that was a little bit larger than a man's handkerchief, and it was sitting on their porch next to the screen door. Beulah picked it up, smelled it, and as soon as she inhaled, she was violently ill. She described it as being similar to an electric shock. Her face began to swell. She had a burning sensation in her mouth and throat and started throwing up. As with the other victims, she said she felt weak and experienced partial paralysis of her legs. Beulah Cordes later hypothesized that the cloth had been left on the porch in order to knock out the family dog, because the dog usually slept there, so that then maybe whoever the prowler was could, could get into the house without being noticed. In addition to the cloth, someone found a skeleton key, which was described as looking like it was very, very much used, supposedly found on the sidewalk adjacent to the porch, along with a large, almost empty, tube of lipstick. The cloth was analyzed by authorities. They found no chemicals that could explain Beulah's reaction. Maybe somebody's just littering, yo. The same night, there was a second incident, North 13th Street, at the home of Mrs. Leonard Bureau. She reported seeing a stranger break in through her bedroom window and attempt to gas her. Police concern over these gassings quickly rose. The FBI became involved, and local police issued a statement calling on residents to avoid lingering in residential areas, and they warned that groups set up to patrol for the gasser should be disbanded for reasons of public safety. 
Chief of Police C.E. Cole also warned citizens to exercise due restraint when carrying out, uh, carrying, pardon, or discharging firearms. Yeah, you get a little too hysterical there. You might shoot somebody innocent. During this time, there was actually an increase in physical evidence of attacks being reported ranging from footprints, allegedly discovered, you know, underneath windows, and tears in window screens. Who knows if it had anything to do with that, right? They could have just things that were already there and you wouldn't have noticed. By September 12th, local police had so many false alarms that they reduced the priority of these gasser reports and announced that entire incident was likely a result of things that they could explain and it was just the public's fear exacerbating it and a sign of anxiety felt by women while their local men were on war service. Another, de- another interesting detail, yeah, you know, the war and people were leaving. After this police announcement, by the way, the reports did decline. And the only incident of maybe, you know, that was worthy of noting was a case of Bertha Birch, who said she saw a gasser who was a woman dressed as a man. So a little table here, just to lay out this brief timeline. August 31, 1944, Mr. and Mrs. Urban Rafe, Grant Avenue. September 1st, unnamed person, name not reported in the media. September 1st, Mrs. Charles Ryder, Prairie Avenue. September 1st, Mrs. Berth, Bert Ken, Kearney, bleh, Marshall Avenue. September 5th, Mrs. Beulah Cords, North 21st Street. September 5th, Mrs. Leonard Bureau, North 13th Street. September 6th, Mrs. Laura Junkin, Richmond Avenue. September 6th, Ardell Spangle, North 15th Street. September 6th, Mr. Fred Goebel, saw Prowler that he thought was the gasser. September 6th, Mrs. Glenda Hendershot, South 14th Street. September 6th, Mr. Daniel Spohn, North 19th Street. September 6th, Mrs. Cordy Taylor, Charleston Avenue. September 6th, Mrs. Francis Smith, Miss Francis Smith, Miss Maxine Smith, Moultrie Avenue. September 7th, the same as above. Saw blue vapor and heard a motorized buzzing sound believed to be from gassing machinery. There's you some blue vapor. September 8th, Mrs. C.W. Driscoll, DeWitt Avenue. September 9th, Mrs. Genevieve Haskell, Grayson Wayne Haskell, Mrs. Russell Bailey, Miss Catherine Tuzo in Westwood. September 9th, Mrs. Lucy Stevens, North 32nd Street. September 10th, unnamed Champaign Avenue. September 10th, unnamed 2112 Moultrie Avenue. September 10, Mrs. Frances Smith, Miss Maxine Smith, again, Moultrie Avenue, their third reported attack. September 13th, Bertha Birch. Three theories about this mad gasser incident include, of course, mass hysteria, industrial pollution, and the possibility that there might have been an actual physical assault. Almost two weeks after these attacks began, local commissioner of public health, Thomas V. Wright, announced that there had undoubtedly been a number of gassing incidents, but it was likely due to hysteria, residents hearing of alarming events, and then panicking when confronted by an out-of-place odor or shadow at the window. Quote, there is no doubt that a gas maniac exists and has made a number of attacks, but many of the reported attacks are nothing more than hysteria. Fear of the gas man is entirely out of proportion to the menace of relatively harmless gas he is spraying. The whole town is sick with hysteria. So, it, so it's interesting that he's, he says that it's real, but that it's exaggerated and that while some people have seen it, maybe other people are just imagining it. It was police, CE, police chief C.E. Cole, though, that said that there were probably no attacks at all. And that maybe chemicals had been carried on a wind uh, from nearby industrial facilities. It was given further validity in 1945 when the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology published The Phantom Anesthetist of Mattoon, a field study of mass hysteria. Toxic waste or pollution, uh, the same police chief told, uh, said at a press conference that odors and symptoms reported may have been the result of nearby plants speculated that carbon tetrachloride or trichloroethylene, both of which have a sweet odor and actually can induce similar symptoms, 
might have been what was carried on the wind. In response to this, Atlas Imperial, which was a primary company that was implicated in this affair, said that their facility had only five gallons of carbon tetrachloride in stock, and it was contained in firefighting equipment. They also denied that any quantities of trichloroethylene, which is an industrial solvent, could be responsible for sickness in the town. They said that it would have taken significant quantities of the chemical to sicken the townspeople, and that factory workers would have had the same symptoms long before anybody outside of the factory was affected. They were, at the time of the attack, certified as safe by the State Department of Health. But, you know, who can say if we can trust them? I don't trust them, do you? And, of course, you got people that still totally believe it was a person. Some paranormal writers have covered the events. There is an illustration of the gasser from Lauren Coleman's Mysterious America, and the artist depicts him as a not-quite-human, possibly extraterrestrial being. Because of course we do! The Mad Gasser is the subject of numerous podcasts. Uh, If you want to look any up, apparently there is a 2018 episode of Do Go On, 2016 episode of The Futility Closet, 2015 episode of The Dollop, and a 2009 episode of The Memory Palace. Apparently... It's even in a video game series, Megami Tensei appears as a recurring recruitable character and a science fiction novel, The Body Snatchers by Jack Finney, the story of the mad gasser of Mattoon is briefly discussed as one of the characters hypothesizes that the widespread panic, which is spreading among the local population about potential alien invaders is nothing but mass hysteria. And in the television series, Supernatural season one, episode 15, the Mad Gasser is made mention of as the Phantom Gasser. And there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. We will finish on the excuse me, gassy note. I hope that this was fun and enlightening. And I freely admit that I have been kind of exhausted these couple of days off, been really busy, etc. I won't bore you with health stuff. And I thus did not get as deep in this as I thought. But it sure has given me other things to think about. Thank you for listening. Find me on Twitter at PodPinky. Instagram, Pinky underscore podcast. If you're one of my British listeners and you had more things you thought I should share about spring Jack, you know, write me at sroyt, R-O-I-T, PinkySquarePress.com. I will happily read, you know, any accounts you know that I didn't cover. You out there, Amber? Let me know if there's something I should have said. Because, yeah, I didn't get, like, super, super deep on it. And go to my website, PeakySquarePress.com. Try out my new novel, Dark Wings, by S. Reut. Urban romance. Or, or, yeah, well, yeah, it's a romance. Pardon. Urban fantasy. Male-male romance. Writing some sequels. Getting closer to the end of the omnibus, Paris Immortal fans. Just know it's going to take forever to proofread. But I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm making progress. And that is me done for this week's episode. Poo-poo, pow And be careful about eating bad broccoli.